Welcome back to the NBA Deep Dives podcast, the first Deep Dives podcast of 2018. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and today we're going to be talking about the Milwaukee Bucks. I'm here today with Tyler Metcalf, and Tyler, how are you today? I'm good, Nick. Thanks for having me back on. Absolutely. Let's get started in terms of the off-season overview with something that actually didn't happen during the off-season, but was certainly the biggest move that the Bucks made prior to, say, December, which was the Eric Bledsoe trade. The Bucks shipped Greg Monroe, a protected 2018 first-round pick, and a protected 2018 second-round pick in return for Eric Bledsoe after Bledsoe publicly declared that he did not want to be in Phoenix, which was pretty understandable given their historically horrific start. But what were your thoughts on Milwaukee trading for the Phoenix point guard? I thought it was a great move. Um, Definitely something that they needed to do to bring in another dynamic playmaker um, and a a two-way guard to help out Giannis. He he really provides a spark um, on, on defense and offense. He provides more versatility and is able to push Brogdon to the bench. I, I think Brogdon's a good player, but I don't think he's a starting point guard, especially on a playoff caliber team, which Milwaukee is, especially now with Bledsoe. The thing about this trade for the Bucks that I think made a lot of sense is that Bledsoe makes a lot of sense as an off-ball point guard. He's point guard sized and he can run a decently effective pick and roll. But really, as you said, he's most useful as a two-way guard. And ultimately, when you're looking for a point guard to put alongside Giannis Anandokounmpo, you want to have a player that's relatively comfortable playing off ball, but more to the point can contribute on the offensive end without always having the ball in his hands. Yeah, he provides a nice scoring option and isn't your typical ball dominant point guard. He's able to cut and finish at the rim as well as spot up from three and hit down those, those catch and shoot threes, which is something they really haven't had in a while and provides that, that defensive aspect before the trade um, their, their offensive rating was 107.2 as a team. And after it's risen to 108.9 and uh, th- their defensive rating was at 109.5 and that's dropped to 107. So he's clearly having an effect on the team on both ends of the floor. And I get that the sample sizes are a little different, but he's clearly had a, a, a very positive effect and kind of done what they expected him to do when they traded for him. The other thing about the deal is that the Bucks traded away Greg Monroe in addition to those picks. And Monroe was really effective for Milwaukee, actually, for the last year and a half or so as a six-man, big-man kind of post-scoring option off the bench, which is something that a lot of the slower post-scoring big men these days have been useful in those kinds of roles, such as Ennis Cantor when he was on the Thunder. Obviously, now he's a starter. But with Monroe, the problem on Milwaukee's end is that Monroe doesn't really fill the kind of need that they have from the center position, which is more of a defense first player, at least in my mind. And Monroe is almost the exact opposite of that. But he was a useful player for Milwaukee. And it is telling that they've had such issues at the center position this year since Monroe went to Phoenix. 
Yeah, he's always been a good post scorer his entire career. And and he did provide a nice spark coming off the bench and another option. But for what they were paying him, I would much rather have that money go to a starting point guard of Bledsoe's caliber. And I, I think making that decision, especially with Monroe just being on the last year of his contract, making that decision, I, I think you, you got to do that every day. Let's move from the early season back into the actual offseason and talk about the two additions that the Bucks did make this offseason, namely their draft choices in DJ Wilson and Sterling Brown. And I wanted to start with DJ Wilson, who has barely played at all this season. He has played a grand total of 46 minutes this year. And the thing about DJ Wilson, I liked him as an early 20s pick in the first round. I thought he should have gone a little bit higher than the late 20s range where most draft experts had him projected to go. I thought with his size and mobility at that size, he could grow into a really effective pick and roll defender. But I thought 17 might have been a little bit high for him. That being said, Milwaukee has, for years now, really valued those bigger players with bigger wingspans to fit into their defensive schemes, and theoretically, DJ Wilson is a perfect fit in that regard. I'm, I'm a pretty big Michigan fan, so I, I ended up watching quite a bit of him and thought he was a, a good, solid player who was able to stretch the floor, rebound, play inside a little bit. But I, I thought 17 was a reach. It almost seemed like he his physical attributes were so similar to guys that they've drafted the past few years. The kind of tall, athletic, lanky, long long wingspan guys. And they just kind of, it almost seemed that they almost fell in love with that aspect more than what he actually brought to the table. And the fact that he just has, he he's barely played at all this year kind of resonates in the fact that he might not have been ready for that. The expectations placed on that mid first round draft grade. On the other hand, though, he does play at probably the most crowded position in the Bucks rotation at power forward. And that's before we even talk about Jabari Parker coming back and the unfortunate issues with Mirza Toledovic. So Wilson was probably not going to get much playing time this season, even if he had come out of the gate strong. But the fact that he hasn't, especially given the kind of draft capital that they used on him, is at least a little concerning. Now, granted, it's way too early to make long-term judgments on him, given that this is still his rookie year. But it is interesting that the Bucks opted to pick someone at maybe their second most crowded position, actually, behind shooting guard, but still a position where they had a bit of a logjam as opposed to center, where at this point they have basically no one besides John Henson. Yeah, I think the general consensus on Wilson was that he he wasn't going to be ready right away anyways, and that he was going to be a bit of a project. So as long as this is something where they're trying to be patient with him and bring him along slowly or something along those lines, like they have with players in the past, I, I, I think that it could work out well because everyone's trying to move to towards this positionless basketball where you get all these you know, six, six to six, 10 guys with long arms who can defend essentially every, every position on the floor. So if they continue to let him develop and be patient with him, he may turn into something like that. But like you said, he's, he's never going to be that, that true rim protector that they 
have a desperate need for at this point. The other Bucks draft pick was Sterling Brown, younger brother of former Lakers dunk master Shannon Brown. And Sterling Brown kind of fits into that switching defense archetype. He's a little smaller than 6'6". He's 6'5"-ish, but he's got excellent 3 and deep potential. He was a really solid shooter in college. He actually shot 45% from deep for his college career, which is mind-boggling. He has played a little bit more than DJ Wilson has so far this season, but not all that much. And granted, part of that is because if power forward is the Bucks' second most crowded position, shooting guard is probably their most crowded position, and it's tough for him to get minutes. But he has looked like the kind of player that could eventually turn into that 3 and D option in the limited time we've seen from him so far this year. Yeah, he's shown flashes of of being a, a, a solid player this year. And he he fits that mold again of the guys that the Bucks have fallen in love with with those you know really long wingspans. He's six five with a six ten wingspan. Um, like you said in college, he shot forty five percent on a decent number of attempts too. Um, this year he's just at thirty three percent from three. So and that's obviously not quite where you want to see it. Um, but with the adjustment to the NBA game, the pace of the line being farther back in college, you know, it's not, not a horrible sign. And his, his free throw percentage this year is still up around, I believe it's like 79%, um, which is a better sign of guys sh- true shooting forms. So if he, if he, as long as that's up there, it shows that he's, you know, really not having any issues with his actual form and that, I, I would expect that three-point percentage to, to slowly rise as he becomes more comfortable at the NBA level. All right, let's move on from talking about offseason and the early season into looking at the season itself. And I wanted to start off by looking at some of Milwaukee's best and worst games this year, just as a microcosm of what makes this team effective and their shortcomings. And let's start with the positives. And the first game I wanted to talk about was their December 9th win over the Utah Jazz. Milwaukee scored 117 points against Utah, and this was a game where Rudy Gobert was actually healthy, which makes those point totals even more impressive. And what stood out to me from this game is that Milwaukee's best players all worked really well together and all had really effective games. Giannis had... 37, 13, and 7. Chris Middleton and Eric Bledsoe both scored 20 points. All three of them shot 50% or better from both the field and from three-point range, although it's a bit unfair to say that about Giannis since he took one three-pointer and made it. But Giannis is by far his most effective around the rim, which obviously makes sense given his relative lack of a jump shot and his ridiculous size. But him being able to put up 37 points against Rudy Gobert in the paint, I thought was really impressive and showed what this team can be when they're attacking the rim at full strength, even against arguably the best rim protector in basketball. Yeah, and they they really were able to get everyone involved in this. They had four guys scoring in, or sorry, five guys scoring in double digits um, with three of them with 20 plus. They were able to move the ball. They re- rebounded pretty well. And 
really just didn't turn the ball over in this game. So when their offense is clicking like that and Giannis is able to get to the rim or, you know, execute on those driving kicks and Middleton, Bledsoe, Brogdon, those guys are able to hit, hit those threes. They're a pretty dangerous offense and they, they definitely showed it in this game when they put up 117 on a, uh, on a team with some very good defenders, especially with Gobert in the paint, Rubio and Ingles and, and Mitchell are all very good defenders too. The only real negative from this game, from the Bucks' perspective, was their fouling propensity. Chris Middleton, John Henson, and Fawn Maker all had five fouls. Giannis had four fouls. And DeAndre Liggins impressively managed to rack up four fouls in 14 minutes of playing time. And the Jazz shot... 37 free throws, which is why they managed to make it to 100 points. But barring the free throw issues, Milwaukee played really great defense in this game. The final scoring margin looks a little bit worse than it actually was because Utah put up 34 points in the fourth quarter. But overall, other than fouling issues, Milwaukee was also able to lock Utah down. The starting Jazz backcourt of Donovan Mitchell and Ricky Rubio combined to shoot six for 24 from the floor, which is particularly impressive. Yeah, and this was probably one of Donovan Mitchell's worst games going four of 17 from the field this year, and that just shows the impact that that Eric Bledsoe trade had. I mean, he's a very good, strong, athletic defender out on the wing and he can help subdue some of those guys, some of those guys. And then when you, when he needs a breather, you, they, uh, they're able to bring in Malcolm Brogdon, who's, you know, not, not as good of a defender as Bledsoe is, but he's still a very solid defender with great length and is able to keep those guys in front of him and really contest their shots and make life a little more difficult. The other game in the positives column that I wanted to discuss was Milwaukee's November 28th beatdown of the Sacramento Kings. And as a Kings fan, this game is a little bit painful to think about. But Milwaukee's utter dominance on both ends of the floor kind of went above and beyond just beating up on one of the weaker teams in the league. In particular, in the second quarter, Milwaukee outscored the Kings 29-11, to and Giannis put up 32 points on just 16 shots, which is ridiculous. And once again, their three best players all shot better than 50% from the field. Chris Middleton, 4 of 7, Eric Bledsoe, 7 of 10, and Giannis, 11 of 16. And dominating a team on both ends of the floor like this is difficult to do against any NBA team. So even when you're talking about one of the easier teams to beat in the league, you still have to give Milwaukee credit for just the degree of dominance in this game. Yeah, this was very one-sided, um, essentially from the start. And Giannis was a major reason why, like you said, 32 points, five rebounds, five assists, five steals. He had a defensive rating of 75, which is just absurd in this game. And as a team, they just played really well in general. They had 27 assists on their night. Their league or their season average is 23. So they were clearly moving the ball more, getting out on the break with all those steals, which they had 13 of in that game, which is five more than, what they usually have on the season. 
so when they're able to just th- their offense almost seems to start from the defensive end, which it clearly did in this one um, when they're able to force the Kings into so many turnovers. Anytime you can shoot almost 60% from the floor, you clearly had a good game, but we also have to talk about some of Milwaukee's worst games. We can't only talk about the positives. So I wanted to talk about their game against the Oklahoma City Thunder on October 31st to start with. And the main issue that I think the Bucks had in this game is that Giannis showed up to play and nobody else did. And that's kind of been the story of Milwaukee season to some extent, just because Giannis is so ridiculously good and the Bucks don't really have anyone else that I would consider an all-star talent. I think Chris Middleton is kind of on the cusp of that when he's at his best as kind of the ultimate three and D wing, but Giannis had an excellent game and nobody else on the team even scored in double figures. Chris Middleton in particular went three of 14 from the field and Oklahoma basically controlled this game from jump. And we talked about Milwaukee's great second quarter against the Kings. And this game was kind of the opposite. Oklahoma city scored 29 points and held the bucks to just 19 Bucks barely managed to crack 40 points by halftime. Yeah, Oklahoma has a, a very, very good defense, and this was before the Bucks traded for Bledsoe, so, and that helps explain some of their offensive struggles. But like you said, no one else showed up in this game besides Giannis. As a team, they shot 29% from three. Middleton was horrible. He was 0 for 6 from three, couldn't make anything from the floor essentially. And that's kind of been the common theme this year is games that they get blown out in or just, you know, aren't even close to winning. Giannis has his, you know, 25 to 30 points with five, five and five and, and everything else. And then you look at the rest of the box score and no one else is even in double figures. Middleton in this game was a a minus 19, Tony Snell a minus 22, and Del Vadova was a minus 18 off the bench. So when you get zero help from anyone else on the roster, it's hard to even be competitive when you're going against some of the, the better teams. And finally, let's close out this section by talking about what, in my mind, is pretty much undeniably their worst loss of the season just an absolutely brutal 111 to 79 beatdown from the Dallas Mavericks, who won this game, which was their third win out of 17 tries on the season. And this wasn't the kind of game that the Bucks could say, oh, you know, we were just tired. It was the end of a back to back. They had two off days before this game, and they still got absolutely smacked by one of the worst teams in the league. Eric Bledsoe shot two for 10. Giannis was okay. He had 24 points, 17 rebounds, but he did take 20 shots to get there. Chris Middleton, oddly enough, was really the only player who showed up in this game. He was 9 of 12 from the floor, put up 23 points. But losing by this kind of margin to any team is pretty embarrassing, but losing by this kind of margin to the team that at the time had, I think the worst record in the league is really embarrassing. This is absolutely an inexcusable loss. There's no reason to get blown out like that to the Mavericks who at the time were three and 14 and 
at this point aren't exactly much better. One of the main things I saw was that they got out-rebounded by 11. They only had 38 rebounds to Dallas's 49. They shot just 24% from three. They, I, I, I have no idea what happened to them because just no one showed up. They only had three guys off the bench play more than five minutes in Brogdon, Don Maker, and DeAndre Liggins, who had a plus-minus of minus 22, minus 28, and minus 30, respectively. And again, it was Giannis showed up, and no one else really did. Middleton was okay with 23 points, but Giannis had 17 of their 38 rebounds. So when you get no help from anyone else on the team rebounding, it's it's tough, and they 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 were unable to hit a, a shot from outside. So this game was just absolutely appalling. Well, if we're gonna talk about rebounding, let's move on to talking about the big man rotation, which is Milwaukee's biggest area of weakness this year, especially at the center position, where they really only have two guys that you could consider centers and one of them in Thon Maker is at least in my mind still too skinny to be an effective full-time center but with that in mind which two front court players do you think are the best fit for the Bucks in terms of their fit with each other and in terms of their fit with the rest of the starting lineup yeah this is rough because they don't really have a good starting center Henson's a fine player but he, he should really be coming off the bench for them, but I mean, he's starting because they don't really have anyone else. And I think Giannis and Henson is kind of the way that they have to keep going with it right now. They have an offensive rating when they're on the floor together. They have an offensive rating of 111.8 and a defensive rating of 103.4, which neither of which are outstanding or unbelievable, but they're solid, especially compared to when Giannis and Toledovic are on the floor. It's only been 78 minutes, but they have an offensive rating of 90.7 and a defensive rating of 110.7. And just the gaps are just even worse for Henson and Toledovic. I really, I'd like to see Par- once Parker comes back, if they try and move Giannis to the center position because he's versatile and strong enough and long enough that he can guard anyone on the floor. And I think that would provide a nice dynamic where they have a lot of versatility from one through five. I think a lot of these concerns will be cleared up at least to some extent when Jabari Parker gets back into the fold, because especially last season where he really impressively improved his three point shooting, I think that will help with some of the offensive spacing issues that the team has had with Henson and Giannis as the two front court players. But the problem with that is you're going to have to wait a while for Jabari to come back. He's probably not going to be back until the all-star break is my guess, just based on the nature of that ACL surgery. But if Jabari can be 70% of what he was last season coming off that ACL tear, I think that will really help clear things up on the offensive end. Absolutely. And, and there's no reason that they should try and rush him back. Um, either and they should be a guaranteed lock playoff team so once he's healthy and they start kind of easing him in and keeping him on a minutes restriction because he's blown out his ACL twice now since he's been in the NBA so you don't want to rush him back but if they can kind of get him 
comfortable and in the flow of things, you know, a month or so before the playoffs start, then I think that would be ideal. And, and like you said about Thon Maker, I he's fine off the bench, but he's a huge project. He was considered a even more raw prospect than Giannis was, and he 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 needs to put on a lot of muscle before he can truly start playing some impactful minutes in the post. And finally, when it comes to their big men, I there's been some talks of whether or not they should trade for DeAndre Jordan. And I, I don't get that. I, I know they need help at center, but I don't think that's the right move to make. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing them trade for someone like New Orleans Noel. And I was just kind of curious what your thoughts on if there is anyone out there that they should make a move for. New Orleans Noel is interesting. I'm not sure what his health situation is at the moment after he had that hand surgery. The thing about the DeAndre Jordan rumors it depends, in my mind, entirely on what the price for him would be. If for some reason there's no other market for DeAndre and the Clippers are just desperate to move on from him, then if the Bucks can get him for a pretty cheap price, I think it might be worth it. The problem with DeAndre is that he becomes a free agent this offseason. Well, he doesn't technically become a free agent, but he has a player option that he's almost certainly going to decline. And... If Milwaukee can get him at a rental type of price, then I think he might be worth it. But anything more than a heavily protected first round pick and some end of the bench guy like, say, Sterling Brown or Joel Ballenboy, I just don't think it's worth it for them. I agree. And that contract is the biggest concern because he and he's not going to re-sign in Milwaukee. And I, I don't think they're you know, a piece away from really challenging for the NBA title, which is, if, if they were, then you make that trade every time. But I, I think it's too much of a risk, and they're still building building up a lot of younger guys. Um, so I, I feel like doing that would almost end up with them taking a step back going into next year. I want to circle back and talk about Thon again briefly. And you mentioned him being even bigger of a project than Giannis, which I think is worth bearing in mind because I think a lot of people got really high on Thon last year after his rookie season, which was more impressive than I think most people expected. Thon has had a really solid run in an incredibly small sample size in January so far for the Bucks, But before that, he had been going through an absolutely brutal sophomore slump from October through December, he shot 39.2% from the floor and 29.5% from deep. And when your long-term NBA future is as a stretch five with rim protection potential, you just can't shoot that poorly from both the floor and from deep. And 39.2% from the floor I could get if you were, say, a Jason Terry type although better than Jason Terry's been so far this year when he's been pretty brutal. But if you're a Jason Terry type or Jason Kidd back in the end of his career where really all you're doing is shooting from three-point range, 39.2% is fine. But that kind of shooting mark from a center and coupling that with his poor shooting from deep was really troubling. Yeah, he's shown he's been, or he's been very inconsistent with his shot. There'll be games where... You know, he, he hits three or four, and then the next game he'll go one of six. Uh, but but overall, I, his percentages are essentially the same as last year. So it, 
I think they're down a little bit, but nothing like extremely drastic. And he's also doubled the amount of minutes he's been playing per game up to 18 from, I think it was just over nine last year. So the, the increase in playing time can only help his development and help him get more comfortable with the pace of play and what's expected from him on the floor. But I, I agree, just the, the inconsistencies and when you're expected to be able, when you can't protect the rim right now, like he can't, and he's only averaging 0.8 blocks per game, and he's expected to be able to hit down, hit those corner threes and um, th- those wide open catch and shoots, then you got to make them and you got to be better than than what he's been showing this year. Ironically enough, he has actually looked a lot better since Russell Westbrook murdered him on a dunk earlier, which I don't know, maybe that got him fired up and got him back in the flow of things. But his play before the start of January was really tough to watch. Yeah, hopefully it's just one of those things where he he got off to a slow start and he's really in the full swing of things and getting more comfortable with playing with playing alongside Giannis and Bledsoe and continues to develop like a lot of younger guys do. It's pretty or it's pretty common that young guys will struggle earlier in the season and then they really get into the swing of things and get set with their routines and with practice and travel and you you see their numbers go up as the season progresses. Let's move on to talking about the wings and guards. And I wanted to start off by talking about Giannis, who's kind of difficult to place in sort of traditional positional schemes. He's probably spent most of his time this year at power forward, but he kind of plays more of a guard slash wing role on offense. And somehow Giannis has taken yet another leap after winning most improved player last year. He had an incredibly hot start to the season, and his numbers are down a little bit since then, but still averaging over 29 points a game, over 10 rebounds a game, nearly five assists per game, 55.4% shooting from the floor, leading in total all-star votes, which is incredibly shocking given that I would have expected LeBron and Steph Curry to dominate that category for the third year in a row. And Giannis just turned... 23. And it is truly shocking that he has yet again managed to take yet another leap. He probably won't finish this year as his fifth consecutive year where he's improved in every statistical category since his assist steal and block numbers are a little bit lower than they were last year. But his ability to be as effective as he is when everybody knows that his primary way of scoring is just dribble through everybody and get to the rim is shocking. He's incredible. His The combination of his athleticism and length really makes him just one of the most fun players to watch in the NBA. And his Euro step covers the, the entire width of the lane, and he, he can get to the rim from half court in two steps. He's His shot is awful. Um, and if he can Hopefully he continues to work on it. Well, obviously he's going to continue to work on it, but hopefully it continues to improve. And if he develops any semblance of a three-point shot, it's he's going to be absolutely deadly. And he's second in the league in scoring per game this year. 
he has a net rating of plus 4.7, which is the highest of his career. He's plus 103 on the year, which is the highest of his career. And and like you said, his, their offenses essentially just give it to him and let him try and bully his way to the rim. And teams know it, and they still can't stop him because of how long he is. Um, and then on defense, he's able to guard everyone on the floor. His footwork is incredible. He's able to keep smaller, faster guys in front of him. He's strong enough to battle with centers and power forwards on the block and with guys on breakaway who are looking for breakaway layups are never safe when he's chasing them down and loves those chase down blocks. Let's talk quickly about Malcolm Brogdon, who shocked pretty much everyone last year when he ended up winning rookie of the year. And this year, he's really proved, in my mind at least, that it wasn't a fluke. He's arguably been more effective this year, actually, than he was last year. He's upped his scoring average. He's still shooting really well from three. His percentage is down slightly, but his attempts are also up pretty significantly. And the thing about Malcolm Brogdon is that he just doesn't make mistakes. And when you're talking about rookie players, even older rookies like Malcolm Brogdon, you're almost always going to see players getting lost on the defensive end, maybe being out of position on the offensive end. But it's really hard to find fault with anything that Brogdon does. He's not a star player. I think that's pretty clear. But he's a very, very solid player who finds a way to fit in alongside pretty much everybody and has been the driving force of Milwaukee's bench not being as atrocious as I think they would be without him in the lineup. Yeah, we touched on him a little earlier with the Bledsoe trade, too. He's he's a very solid player. I don't think he's a starting point guard for a, like a strong playoff team, but he's a very good guy to have come off the bench. And that, that's exactly what he's been this year. You touched on it with his shooting percentages. His three-point percentage is essentially the same, which is really good to see considering that he's had more attempts. Um, he's, I, I don't think, I, I think we're practically at his ceiling for what type of player he's going to be. But that's a very good guy to have coming off the bench. And before we get to the future outlook, I want to talk briefly about Tony Snell, who started the year on an absolutely ridiculous hot streak to the point where he had a really rough December, especially from three-point range, and he's still shooting 41.1% from deep on the year. And Tony Snell isn't really going to contribute much outside of three-point shooting and probably around league average defense on the perimeter, but he's also very clearly Milwaukee's fifth option, and he's a pretty solid fit in that fifth option kind of role. Yeah, people weren't super high on him in Chicago, and they were more or less okay getting rid of him, but he's been a nice surprise to the Bucks. He's provided some outside shooting off the bench, and I mean, he's not he's nothing special, but, he's, but when you have that guy that's able to consistently knock down threes at a plus 40% clip, that, that's... An absolute that's absolutely an asset all right let's move on by talking about the future outlook for this team and i wanted to start by talking about the outlook for the rest of this season and the first point i wanted to discuss is milwaukee's chances at home court advantage now the bucks 
as we are recording this podcast on Sunday afternoon, are in a three-way tie for fifth place in the Eastern Conference. But they are also tied in the loss column with the Wizards, who are currently in fourth place. Do you think the Bucks have a chance at home court advantage, or do you think they're probably going to be one of the lower seeds in the Eastern Conference playoffs? With the talent they have on their roster, they should be in contention for the fourth spot, but I I, I don't think they're really going to end up posing much of a a challenge to Washington. I I could see them right in at number five, which would lead to a very fun first-round matchup with the Wizards, most likely. But they, they should end up better than than Miami. I think they have a better roster talent-wise than Miami does. But I, I don't think that at the end of the day and at the end of the season, they'll have home court. And on a similar note, I wanted to talk briefly about Milwaukee's record to end the season. What do you think their record will be by the end of the year? And I think both in terms of that home court advantage and in terms of their record by the end of the season, the next week and a half for them will be really telling. They have two games against the Heat, who they're currently tied with in fifth place. They have a game against the Wizards. They have a game against the Golden State Warriors. And they have a game against the team right behind them in eighth place tomorrow in the Indiana Pacers. I think that the Bucks will probably end up with 45, 46, 47 wins, somewhere in that range. But ultimately, I think both their chances at home court advantage and their final record will depend heavily on when Jabari Parker comes back and how effective he is when he gets back to action on the court. I have the exact same thought process. I think they have the talent to finish with 48, 49 wins, but I'm guessing they'll be more around in the mid forties with 45, 46-ish. And the, these next couple games are going to be huge for where they end up in the standings. You, you, you have to beat the teams that are around you. And if the, if they don't do that, then they're going to fall a couple spots, but they, they had a nice win against Washington last night. And if they can, have similar performances in these upcoming games, it, it should be a really good sign for them moving forward. All right. And let's also talk about how far the Bucks can go in the playoffs. And I think this is kind of tied into what we've already been talking about in terms of the ceiling for this team. I think that they will have a very exciting first round playoff series against basically whoever they end up playing. And I think they've got a very solid chance of winning that first round matchup. But once they get beyond that first round matchup, I don't think they're going any further in the playoffs. They could maybe beat the Raptors, but they lost to the Raptors last year. And this Raptors team is a very different and I think much better squad than last year's team due to their completely revamped offense. So my guess is that I would put it at about 50-50 that the Bucks make it out of the first round and then about 90% chance that they don't make it any further than that. Absolutely agree. They, I, I don't think if they end up falling in the East and get matched up uh, with uh, Boston, Toronto, who's much better this year than last year, or Cleveland, I don't see them making out, it out of that. If they're in that 4-5 matchup with Washington, I think that could be a lot of fun and their best chance to make it out because I mean, Giannis is a matchup nightmare. Um, and 
it, it, it really depends how Javari comes back and how healthy the team is in general. But they're that that five seed, they can't really fall any farther than that if they're looking to make it out of the first round. And next up is, I think, the question that a lot of Bucks fans have had on their mind as this team has, certainly in my opinion, and by what you've said so far, it kind of sounds like your opinion too. I think the Bucks have pretty drastically underperformed to their talent so far this year. And I would say about 99% of the blame for that falls on the inexcusably terrible coaching of Jason Kidd. And his first year in Milwaukee, he installed this hyper-aggressive switching defensive scheme that was really effective that year. And after that, opposing teams figured it out. And now the Bucks are allowing the worst three-point shooting percentage in the league to opposing teams. Granted, some of that is a bit random, but the Bucks just allow other teams wide, wide open shots because Kid wants them to try and switch everything and run everywhere on the defensive end. And players get lost when you do that, even when you have a team that's as long across every position as the Bucks. And on the offensive end, Kid is just not letting this team put up three-point shots, which granted when Giannis is your best player, that's kind of understandable. But when you have guys like Chris Middleton and Malcolm Brogdon and Tony Snell and Matthew Dellavedova, whose really only effective offensive skill is his three-point shooting, it just doesn't make sense to me that they run the kind of offense that they do. And lastly, Kidd was overplaying DeAndre Liggins so much that the Bucks general manager basically had to cut him so that Kidd didn't continue to make that mistake. I think with Earl Watson out of the league, Jason Kidd is almost unquestionably the worst head coach in basketball. And it's just really disappointing to see a team with the kind of talent that Milwaukee has be crippled by clinging on to someone who has proven to be a head coach that won't make changes when there are obvious changes that need to be made. He's so frustrating to watch. Just the amount of talent that they have on this team. They should be so much better. They have the second leading scorer in the NBA and someone who people think is going to win multiple MVP awards or at least has the ability to do so. And they're fighting for the fifth seed at best in their own conference. All of his schemes on offense and defense, like you said, are just so outdated. And they're so easy to manipulate from the opponent's point of view. On offense, they don't get any easy shots um, when they're tightly guarded. So defenders within two to four feet, 39.1% of their shot attempts come in those situations. And only three other teams have a higher percentage than that. And when you have a talent like Giannis, you got to make it easy for him or else he's A, going to get sick of playing for you. and B just is going to get exhausted when he has to fight through the entire team every single time. And more concerningly is some of Kidd's late-game decision-making and instructions that he's given the team when he told Middleton to miss a second free throw when they were up only three with 1.4 seconds left. And in another game when they were up four against the Pistons with 9.6 seconds left, he had their team 
started fouling, intentionally fouling the Pistons to let them shoot free throws so they couldn't get a quick two, was his explanation. They ended up winning both those games, but I, why are you giving the opponent the ability to score with the clock stopped when you're only up by four? And the fact that Milwaukee won both of those games, combined with the fact that they are above 500 right now, leads me to believe that Jason Kidd is going to at least make it to the end of this season. Sadly for Bucks fans and Giannis fans alike, I don't think Kidd gets fired mid-season. But what I'm concerned about is Milwaukee leadership looking at their record and saying, well, he led us to the playoffs. Why would we fire a coach who led us to the playoffs? And I think that's just a ridiculous line of thinking because the way I would see it is, well, this is a team that I think should win 50 games, just given how incredible Giannis is and given the complimentary pieces alongside him. And the question is not how good is this team with Jason Kidd as the coach, but how good this team would be without Jason Kidd as the coach. And we saw this incredibly clearly when Golden State fired Mark Jackson after he led the team to the playoffs. They replaced him with Steve Kerr, and they instantly became a historically good team. The Warriors were the exact example that I was thinking of when you were going through that. They they were a good team, and then they became a great team. And Milwaukee's a solid team, but with Kidd, they're never going to truly challenge anyone in the East because he just he doesn't adapt, and he makes just mind mind-boggling late-game decisions and plays the wrong guys and doesn't let anyone the freedom to grow with the way that the NBA has been changing. And and they're 30th in the league in rebounding their archaic defensive schemes, which, at, like you said, after a year, everyone figured out and has have been able to easily counter all right before we wrap up i want to take a look at the future beyond this season and really the be all and end all of the milwaukee bucks future is Giannis Anandokounmpo. and my question for Giannis is when not if do you think he'll win his first mvp and granted you can never truly tell how these kinds of things are going to pan out, but just given what we've seen from Giannis and how much he's improved every year in the league, I think it's just a matter of time before he wins his first MVP, as you touched on briefly earlier. I don't think he will win MVP next season unless the Bucks bring in a new head coach who really finds a way to unlock Giannis more than Kidd has. But I think that by the 2019-2020 season, Giannis will be pretty much unquestionably the best player in basketball. After the first couple of weeks or first month of the season, everyone was ready to give it to him this season. And um, and obviously LeBron and Harden had different points of view with that. But I, I think in the next two, three years, he's legitimately going to be one of the finalists, if not the recipient of the MVP award. And a lot of it's going to end up with how long is Jason Kidd there and who is coaching him and who is, you know, help, helping him be more creative and dynamic in his game. Because if if the longer kid stays there, I think the longer it'll be until he wins that MVP award. But if they, they are able to bring in 
someone new next year with a more creative mindset and offensive schemes that create easier baskets and more free-flowing basketball, then I could see it in the next two to three years. All right. Before we wrap up, we actually have some breaking news on this podcast. And by breaking news on this podcast, I mean news broken by Shams Charania that happened just a couple seconds ago. The Bucks decided to guarantee Sean Kilpatrick's contract for the rest of the year and waive Joel Ballenboy. And having seen Sean Kilpatrick on the Nets for the past couple of years, I'm a huge fan of this move. He's a really solid offensive creator. He doesn't really bring much else to the table, but he's also just such an infectiously positive presence, both on the bench and in the locker room. And especially with the kind of issues that I think a team could have morale wise with Jason Kidd at the helm. I'm just so happy to see Sean Kilpatrick once again, getting his contract guaranteed after getting cut by the Nets earlier this year. Congrats to Sean. That's awesome news. It's always good to see guys get paid. And I, I think he's a, he's going to be a good fit for the team. Um, just another, just providing some more depth there at guard. And hopefully he's able to get um, a, a few legitimate minutes as they ease him into the rotation. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? I think we pretty much covered it all. Great. Well, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at T-M-E-T-C-A-L-F-1-1. You can also find his work on the hashtag basketball website. You can follow me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N and find my work on the hashtag basketball website. If you want to hear more about the Milwaukee Bucks, be sure to check out the brand new hashtag Bucks pod, which debuted a couple of days ago. And check out the rest of the great podcasts on the Hashtag Basketball Network. We recently had the 100th episode of the Watching the Boxes pod, and the host said that my name sounds like a Game of Thrones name, which might be the best thing anybody's said about me in a very long time. So definitely be sure to check that out. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. It would be much appreciated. And if you have any feedback in terms of where you want to see the podcast go in terms of next episodes, what teams you might want me to discuss, please either reach out to me via Twitter or send me an email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.